Just a reminder, I am going to be on the Get Vocal app every Thursday at 7 p.m. Central to talk all things true crime. It's a great way for you to interact with me and other listeners of the show. Head to Get Vocal, that's G-E-T-V-O-K-L dot com, or download the app on the App Store. And I'll see you there this Thursday. Explicit content is found in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to the True Crime Fan Club Podcast. I'm your host, Lainey. It's terrible when a child loses his parents to violence. It's unthinkable to know a child witnessed the murder of their parents. In this episode, we are going to discuss the case of the ninja murders. Okay, on to the show. Winter days are short and the nights long in Alaska. Anchorage receives about five and a half hours of daylight around Christmas. On Christmas Eve 2016, the sun set around 3.44 p.m. At 3.54 p.m., a 911 call was received by Anchorage Police Department, reporting that a man had been shot and was on the ground in the area of 4130 Paterkin Avenue. When the units arrived on the scene, they found a black male just outside an apartment building. He had sustained numerous gunshot wounds, including one to his head. He was transported to Alaska Native Medical Center, where he died from his wounds. Officers believe this victim was Christopher Brooks, who was only 38 years old. Additional officers arrived at the scene and found a second victim just inside Unit Number 4 at 4130 Paterkin Avenue. Police officers said the second victim was covered in so much blood they could not determine how she had been killed. The second victim was thought to be Danielle Brooks, just 32 years old. Danielle and Christopher were the 33rd and 34th murder victims in Anchorage, Alaska in 2016. A small child around six years of age was found wandering around the apartment complex parking lot. When officers spoke with him, the child said ninjas had come to his home, told him to go to his room, then killed his mom. The child was taken to Alaska Cares for treatment and follow-up questions. A witness came forward and said he had heard gunshots and looked out his window. He saw three black males, all dressed in black, running away from the apartment complex. They got into what appeared to be a green Honda Pilot with four doors. At 4.22 p.m., Anchorage Police Department received another 911 call, this one from a local hospital. A male had been dropped off with a gunshot wound. Officer Carpenter responded to the hospital and found DeAnthony Harris, a black male. DeAnthony said that he was walking with a friend, Jalen Franklin, in the Mountain View neighborhood, heading to a relative's house. The two men heard an argument, then saw another man being chased. DeAnthony then heard shots and was struck in the leg. DeAnthony was extremely vague with details about the shooting, but then medical personnel walked in, so the officer exited the room. He relayed the information to other officers. Officer Huyer located Jalen Franklin, who said he was with DeAnthony. However, he said they were in the Mountain View area, walking to a holiday station. He heard someone yelling for help and saw a man crawling upstairs, and another man who shot this man several times, 
Then DeAnthony was struck and fell to the ground. Jalen picked DeAnthony up and carried him about a block before an unknown light-skinned black male gave them a ride in a dark suburban. Another investigator contacted Providence Hotel and reviewed the security footage available. On the video, they saw that Jalen and DeAnthony entered the parking lot on the east side. Officer Huyer observed blood on Jalen's clothes, body, and hands. He was also dressed inappropriately for the winter temperatures outside. Jalen was taken to the police department for a more in-depth questioning. Jalen continued to hedge while being questioned, but finally told investigators he had picked DeAnthony up at work around 1 or 2 p.m., then drove to another friend's house where he met a man named Marcus and another unidentified man. Marcus asked the two men if they wanted to make money and proposed they rob a victim of drugs and money. Jalen continued that they had gotten t-shirts for their faces and also gloves to wear during the robbery. Marcus said the victim, Christopher, was waiting on him to come over. The unidentified male drove them to an alleyway near the victim's home, and the three men got out to go into the home. They stopped to cover their faces and then went inside. Jalen and DeAnthony waited in the living room with Danielle, while Marcus went to a bedroom with Christopher. A few minutes later, Christopher and Marcus came back into the living room, while Marcus was demanding money and drugs. Danielle started screaming, Oh my God! Oh my God! Marcus and Christopher began wrestling over the gun, and DeAnthony attempted to help. This was when DeAnthony got shot. Marcus shot Christopher several times and then shot Danielle from about five feet away. Jalen told investigators he thought she was shot to get rid of any witnesses. The men exited the apartment and got into the Honda and drove off for DeAnthony to get medical assistance. Jalen initially said Marcus was the only one with a gun, but then changed his story to say that DeAnthony had a gun too. Investigators got Jalen to find Marcus on social media in an attempt to identify him. Jalen found LaMarcus Mann as a friend of a friend and said that was the man he knew as Marcus. Jalen was then shown a photo array and he picked LaMarcus Mann out of the photo lineup. Officers working in the neighborhood viewed camera footage from a home in the area. They saw three men entering the alley and saw the Honda being followed by a Nissan Rogue. The officers checked and LaMarcus Mann had received a citation in that Nissan Rogue. Prior to this incident, Jalen Franklin only had one charge of leaving the scene of an accident. He admitted he deleted text about the crimes because he was afraid of being caught. Jalen was charged with first-degree burglary, first-degree robbery, tampering with evidence, and two counts of second-degree murder. His bond was set at $100,000. DeAnthony Harris was also charged with first-degree burglary, first-degree robbery, and two counts of second-degree murder. In the meantime, police searched for LaMarcus Mann. They issued a warrant and warned the public that he was armed and dangerous. He was arrested Tuesday, December 27, 2016, in a local motel. Anchorage Police Department SWAT and several police officers surrounded his motel room and ordered the other motel occupants out. LaMarcus and an unidentified male exited the room without consequence. LaMarcus was charged with two counts of first-degree murder, first-degree burglary, and first-degree robbery. 
Lamarcus Mann was arraigned on December 28, 2016. His bond was set at $250,000 cash appearance and $250,000 cash performance, in addition to ordering a third-party custodian for his release. District Court Judge Brian Clark gave Deborah Brooks, Chris's mother, an opportunity to speak. Deborah said, I feel like it was so unfair because you could have taken anything you wanted out of the house. You didn't have to take my daughter's life. Baby, if you've got kids, you'll never see your kids. This is so unfair. All I can do is pray for you and ask God to forgive you and give you the right path to take. In April 2017, a fourth man, Savon Wiley, was arrested for his role in the double homicide and robbery. Although he was not present, he had helped mastermind the robbery. He was charged with two counts of second-degree murder and two counts of robbery. On March 18, 2019, Jalen Franklin took a plea deal to two counts of second-degree murder. He was sentenced to 50 years for each count, with 10 years for each suspended. These must run consecutively. He was also sentenced to another 20 years suspended and 10 years of felony probation. Jury selection for LaMarcus Mann and Savon Wiley began in early July 2019. It took two weeks for the jury to be selected. The trial took three weeks and just hours of deliberation. Both were found guilty of first-degree robbery. LaMarcus was found guilty of first-degree murder, and Savon was found guilty of second-degree murder. Sentencing of the two did not occur until August 12th and 13th, 2020, by Superior Court Judge Steve Cole. On August 12th, Savon was given 76 years, with 20 years suspended, plus 10 years of probation. Savon was subject to 15 to 99 years in prison for each count of murder in the second degree, and 3 to 6 years for the first degree robbery. On August 13th, Lamarcus was sentenced to 109 years for his role in the crimes. He was subject to 30 to 99 years in prison for each count of first-degree murder and five to nine years for the first-degree robbery charge. DeAnthony Malik Harris has not been tried as of yet, but a date is scheduled for November 13, 2020. Christopher Brooks was 38 when he was killed. He had six children and one sister. Chris was an avid sports fan, particularly of the Seattle Seahawks. Many said Chris had a heart of gold and would have done anything for anyone at any time. Chris loved being outside, barbecuing, playing basketball, or inside playing video games. His obituary states, It was the simple things that Chris enjoyed most about life. Danielle Brooks was 32 at the time of her death. She and Chris had been married for less than a year. They were married on February 26, 2016. She was a certified medical assistant and loved her job. She adored her son and once said, I love my son to death. He is the best thing that ever happened to me. When he was born, I changed my life for him. Her friends and family agreed she was driven. What her loved ones missed the most is her smile, which could make anyone happy. I'm going to pause the case right here so you can hear a word from our sponsors. Medterra is one of the leading CBD brands in the industry with a full line of functional CBD products. 
Staying healthy nowadays means watching your overall well-being, sleep, stress, and your overall health. You should prioritize easy ways to boost your immunity. And Medterra is legal in all 50 states and you won't get high. It's basically everything you need for daily immune support in one convenient bottle to keep you protected all day long, no matter where you are. In the past, I've always thought of immunity products as something that you take once you start to feel run down, but being proactive about it is so important right now. They sent me some of it a few weeks ago, and I've been using it as part of my daily routine. I feel more refreshed, less groggy, and have better mental clarity. I love that it has a great taste and their dedication to quality, and especially that they have zero THC. I was skeptical of CBD products before, and I think this product could be good for anyone who's really needing that immune boost. Mentera was developed with leading immunologists and medical doctors. It's a natural combination of CBD, vitamin C, elderberry, echinacea, and ginger root, all scientifically proven to boost your immunity, in addition to Medterra's high-quality CBD extract. So if you want to give it a try, visit medterracbd.com and enter code TCFC at checkout to receive 20% off. That's M-E-D-T-E-R-R-A-C-B-D.com and enter code TCFC at checkout to receive 20% off. Our next story deals with another deadly home invasion. Halfway houses, formerly known as residential reentry centers, serve various purposes. Halfway houses of any kind make many residents in the area nervous and trigger the NIMBY effect, the not-in-my-backyard. Some halfway houses are focused on recovering addicts as a transitional point between treatment and return to their normal lives. Others are focused on mental health issues, and still others as a transitional point between incarceration and a return to society. Today, we are going to discuss the latter halfway house and what happened. Rolf Tita and his family lived in Texas, but every Christmas they spent the holidays at their isolated cabin in Oakley, Utah. Extended family always joined them and it was a high point of the year for all. In the winter months, a snowmobile had to be taken for two miles to the cabin because the roads were not passable in a vehicle. In 1990, Rolf and his wife Kay, her mother Beth Potts, and the two Tita daughters, Lene and Trish, all headed to Utah for their family vacation. Three days prior to Christmas, the family had to go into town to get some more items, mainly to finish their Christmas shopping, before the rest of the family arrived. Lene, her mother and grandmother, were the first to return to the cabin. Lene urged her mother to hurry and unlock the door because it was bitterly cold and she was going to run some water over her hands, then come help her mother. When she got inside, Lene saw something flash around the refrigerator and thought some of the extended family had already arrived. Unfortunately, that is not who she saw. Lene saw a frizzy-headed man in a gray sweatshirt with a pistol pointed at her. Lene thought he was going to rob them and leave, but as soon as her mother walked inside, she saw another man come out of one of the bedrooms. Kay asked the men, What do you want? Why are you here? I'll give you anything. Seconds before Lene heard gunshots, she witnessed her mother falling 
an instant before she heard another gunshot and turned to see her blind and disabled grandmother get shot in the head. Lene started to pray and one of the men told her it would not help because he worshipped the devil. The men duct taped Lene's hands and forced her into the bedroom. A short while later, Lene heard snowmobiles approaching and with dread, knew her father and younger sister were returning. Lene was trying to get the men out of the cabin and into the family car, but before she could, one of the men rushed outside and demanded Rolf and Trish come inside immediately. Lene said one of the men had a gun to her back as her father and Trish came in. One of the men told Rolf to remove his clothing, so he took off some of his clothes. Then both men asked if he had any money. He took $105 out of his billfold and tossed it at the men. He watched as one of the men put the money in his pocket. He had been back at the cabin for less than five minutes before the two men decided to kill him. One of the men pointed his weapon at Rolf and cocked it, but did not pull the trigger. The other man, apparently impatient, pointed his revolver at Rolf and pulled the trigger. He pulled it twice without anything happening, but the third time it actually fired and hit Rolf in the face. He fell down and froze, afraid if they knew he was still alive, they would shoot him again. Rolf could hear the men talking and heard them say something about setting the cabin on fire. He heard more gunshots, then footsteps approaching. He was shot one more time, this time in the forehead. He then felt liquid splashing on his legs and back. The two men talked about taking Lene and Trish to use as shields. Then, Rolf heard snowmobiles leaving. Rolf got up and tried to get rid of some of the fires around the cabin, but since he had been doused with fuel, he caught on fire. He ran into the shower where he tore off his snowsuit to get rid of the flames. He ran outside and jumped on a snowmobile, but was not wearing a coat, gloves, or helmet. His brother Randy had seen the girls leaving just minutes earlier and had waved, but the girls ignored him, hoping he would not be shot too. Randy then saw another snowmobile approaching and was sickened when he realized it was his brother, obviously wounded. It was so cold, Rolf had blood sickles. Rolf quickly explained what happened, and Randy started trying to call the sheriff's department from his cell phone. According to Randy, cell service was spotty, so he had Rolf in the back seat of the car, and they were driving after the two men who had the girls. By this time, they were no longer on snowmobiles, but in Rolf's car. He kept trying to call 911 without any luck. After several tries, he got 911 and explained what had happened which direction the car was going, and what kind of car it was. The dispatcher said they had deputies in the area, and Randy tried to ask for a helicopter for his brother, but the line went dead. Randy went to a gas station and placed the call to 911 from a payphone. He requested a helicopter and explained his brother was gravely injured. While in the car with the killers, Trish Tita saw a police car pass them and then turn around to follow the car. Both men began to panic, and the driver started doing 90 miles an hour in an attempt to outrun the police. They made a right-hand turn going towards a canyon, and the car was suddenly off the road, falling into an embankment. In an interview many years later, Trish said she remembered looking up and seeing law enforcement on the road above them, but also seeing people from the area wearing street clothes. The police officers were pointing guns at the four in the car, and Trish said, No, that's my sister. One of the men pointed his gun at Deputy Sheriff Thomas Coleman, 
and Coleman discharged his weapon. The killers then got down on their knees and put their hands behind their backs. The men were arrested, and the girls found that their dad was still alive. He had been in pretty bad shape, but he was getting medical attention. When officers responded to the cabin, they found an 18-inch puddle of frozen blood in the garage where Rolf had been shot. When the officers went through the house, they found bloodsickles under the spot where Kay and Beth had been shot because the carpet was soaked through with blood. Officers also found where the two men had dragged their two murder victims outside on the deck. Once the men were in custody, they were identified as Vaughn Lester Taylor and Edward Deli. Both men had lived at the Orange Street Community Center, a state-owned halfway house after being released from prison. The two men had left on December 14, 1990 in search of a job, but never returned. They went to Summit County in the area of Oakley and stayed in Von Lester's father's cabin for about a week. On December 21st, Von Lester placed a phone call to the Fremont Community Center and asked to speak to Scott Manley, another inmate. Scott was not available and Von Lester left a message. On December 22nd, Von Lester called Scott again and reached him. Von Lester told Scott where they had been staying and that they had broken into several cabins and stolen some guns. Von Lester said he was in someone's cabin waiting for them to return so he could kill them and steal their car. Both men were each charged with two counts of criminal homicide in the first degree. One count of attempted criminal homicide in the first degree, aggravated arson, two counts of aggravated kidnapping, aggravated robbery, theft, failure to respond to an officer's signal to stop, and aggravated assault. Von Lester accepted a plea deal on May 1, 1991, where he agreed to plead guilty to two counts of capital murder, with the other charges being dropped. However, his attorney did not remove the possibility of the death penalty, and Von Lester was given the death penalty. During Edward Deli's trial, the Tita girls were asked to pick up the weapons used to kill their mother and grandmother. Linnae felt great resentment over that, and neither girl understood the thought process. A camcorder had been recovered from the cabin when one of the investigating officers was trying to protect property once he realized the cabin was on fire. To their shock and amazement, the camera ended up being evidence because Von Lester and Edward had videoed themselves wearing Rolf's clothes and opening Christmas presents under the tree. Edward Deli was found guilty of multiple charges, but his murder charge was downgraded to second degree. He was sentenced to life in prison, which came as a shock to the Titas. Not nearly as much of a shock, though, as when Rolf Tita walked into the courtroom and Edward Deli was shocked to see him. Edward was not aware that Rolf had survived. Von Lesser appealed his sentence and charge for 30 years, until May of 2020, when his charge and sentence were both vacated. A three-day hearing was held where ballistics and witnesses confirmed Edward Deli had actually fired the shots that killed Kay and Beth. Joint funeral services were held for Kay and Beth on December 28th. Beth was 76 years of age when she was murdered. She had been married twice, losing both husbands in automobile accidents. The wreck that took her second husband also caused her blindness and other physical problems. Kay was 49 years old when she was murdered. She had been married to Rolf since 1963, and they had three children, Lene, Trish, and Sean. Both Beth and Kay were active in the Church of Latter-day Saints. 
Rolf Tide rebuilt the cabin better than before, as they said. The family refused to let the events destroy their family even more. Rolf told Lene, Lene, I know lightning strikes, but lightning never strikes twice in the same location. Rolf said, We are trying hard not to let these criminals have their victory and ruin our lives entirely. Rolf was born in Germany and he immigrated to the United States with his mother in 1950. Rolf remarried about a year after the murders. His second wife, Donna, had two children of her own, and Rolf died of cancer in 2008. The two girls both married and still have the cabin. They consider their father their hero and know their loved ones are still with them. The two girls both married and still have the cabin. They consider their father their hero and know their loved ones are still with them. Okay, fan club members, as I conclude this episode, my one question to you is, how will you sleep tonight? Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a positive review and rating on Apple Podcasts or your podcast player of choice. It really does help us out. You can find us on most social media channels, Twitter at TCFCPod, Facebook.com slash TCFCPodcast, Instagram at True Crime Fan Club Pod, and of course, our website is TrueCrimeFanClub.com. If you have an episode request, send us an email, TCFCPod at gmail.com. This episode was written and researched by Susie St. John, content editing by Brittany Martinez, and you already know this was produced by the best in the business, Nico at We Talk of Dreams. Check him out on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams or WeTalkOfDreams.com.